Genesis chapter 43 is where we're going to be. And we are continuing a study that we've been in the last several weeks that we're calling Out of Control. And we're talking about how when life is out of control and the world is out of control and culture is out of control, that our God is always in control. Do you believe that today? And we're learning that through the life of Joseph. And today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 43. How many of you filled out a March Madness bracket? Anybody? Anybody's bracket still doing okay? How many of you are like, I don't care about March Madness at all? Okay. How many of you care about Genesis chapter 43? Anybody like that? Okay. That's good. Genesis chapter 43. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. And that Bible is our gift to you if you do not own a Bible. Most of the verses should be on the screen as well today. And we're going to pick up. The narrative of Genesis chapter 43 in verse number one. Last week we left off the brothers of Joseph returning back home to Canaan. And they met Joseph last week in chapter 42, but they did not know that it was Joseph. And Joseph told them, unless you bring your youngest brother back, Benjamin, uh, you can't come back here. Simeon is left in Egypt and uh, uh, God has been blessing Joseph. And now he's second in command in all of Egypt. And there's a great famine in the land and we find the brothers and Joseph's father somewhat, somewhat in a holding pattern in Genesis chapter 43. And that's where we're going to pick up the narrative today. If you're ready to dive in, would you say amen? Genesis chapter 43, verse number one. The Bible says this, And the famine was sore in the land. And it came to pass, when they had eaten up the corn, which they had brought out of Egypt, their father said unto them, Go again, buy us a little food. And Judah spake unto him, saying, The man did solemnly protest unto us, saying, You shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. If thou wilt send our brother with us, we will go down and buy thee food. But if thou wilt not send him, we will not go down. For the man said unto us, You shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. And Israel said, Wherefore dealt ye so ill with me, as to tell the man whether ye had yet a brother? And they said, The man asked us, Straightly, He asked us straight up of our estate and of our kindred, saying, Is your father yet alive? Have you yet another brother? And we told him according to the tenor of these words, we could certainly, uh, could we certainly know that he would say, Bring your brother down. And Judah said unto Israel, his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, watch this, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. For except we had lingered, surely now we had returned this second time. Today for a few minutes, I wanna to speak to this subject this morning, signs of surrender. Signs of surrender. Let's have a word of prayer and we will jump in today. Lord, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for this opportunity that we have to come in today and to worship you and to celebrate your goodness, to celebrate your love for us. Well, Lord, I pray that we would recognize today that we have a calling to follow you with everything that we have. Lord, I pray that today we would seek to understand what it means to live a surrendered life to you. 
Lord, I pray that we would have a church family that is not holding anything back, but that we would pursue your will with our lives with, with everything that is within us. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, give me the words to say, and Lord, I pray that we can study this passage together and glean all it is that you have for us. We love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, during the COVID lockdowns, my wife Katie bought this mat, this gymnastics mat. And uh, we thought since we're spending so much time inside, we might as well have the kids practice their somersaults and, and doing some cartwheels and things like that. That is not what this mat turned out to be. Uh, this mat turned out to be chapel family wrestling. Every night uh, in our household, we would lay this out and we would have chapel family wrestling. And uh, we would have Liv and Luke uh, go against each other, and uh, we laid some ground rules, of course, and we said, okay, no hitting in the face and no pulling hair and some things like that, and, uh, and uh, we said, you have to get on your knees, and the first person to pin the other person down is going to get a point, best out of three wins, and uh, we had some intense wrestling matches in our household, and it was a lot of fun, but we uh, quickly uh, decided to bring those matches to an end because it seemed like every, every match was ending with tears or with anger or with something that is not in the fruit of the Spirit. And so we decided, okay, uh, let's take a little break from this. But the, the problem was every time they would wrestle is nobody wanted to give in. Uh, nobody wanted to surrender. Even if they clearly lost, they would say, I didn't lose, and they would not want to surrender. Why? Because it is instinctive within our human nature that we don't want to give in. We don't like to surrender. I was watching a video this week. Sports Center put it out. There was an MMA fighter that was fighting, and he got knocked out, and he was disoriented, but he wanted to keep on fighting, and so he grabbed hold of the ref, and he started fighting the ref because he, could, he didn't know where he was and who he was fighting. The ref's like hitting him, telling him to stop. Uh, the fight is already over, but why did he do that? Uh, there is something ingrained within a fighter's mentality. I'm not going to tap out. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to surrender, but what I want you to know today is that ironically and truthfully, one of the upside-down ways of God is that victory comes by way of surrender, that when we surrender our will to God's will, we truly become victorious in life. Uh, Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever lose his life for my sake shall find it. And so surrendering our will to God's will, surrender is not simply a piece or a component to the Christian life. Surrender is the Christian life. Surrendering our will to Jesus is the Christian life. And great victory comes by way of surrender. James chapter 4 verse 7 says this. Submit. Everybody say submit. Submit. Surrender. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so we are called to live a life of submission, a life of surrender. A.W. Tozer put it this way. The man or woman who is wholly or joyously surrendered to Christ can't make a wrong choice. Any choice will be the right one. In other words, there is great peace and there is great freedom when we find ourselves living in the context of surrender, saying, not my will, but thine be done. Ultimately, Jesus is our greatest example of this in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Surrendering his will to the will of the Father. I believe this is one of the greatest struggles facing Christianity, Christianity today. One of the greatest struggles facing followers of Jesus is saying, you know what? It's not about me and my desires and what I want to do and my plans and my goals and my ambitions. It's all about what God wants for my life. It's all about surrendering my will to his will, taking a step back and saying, not my will, but thine be done. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Are we living lives of surrender? Are we willing to say, you know what, I'm willing to lose my life 
to find it in God's will. And so uh, in this passage, say in Genesis chapter 43, we're going to dive in and we're going to see that uh, Jacob and his sons, Joseph's family, is going to finally come to this place of surrender. They're finally going to start surrendering their will uh, to God's will. Uh, Last week, we saw that the brothers, they went uh, to Egypt because they needed some food and uh, Joseph saw them. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. And Joseph showed him kindness. Joseph showed him grace and he gave them provision. He gave them their money back, but he kept Simeon, one of their brothers, back in Egypt, and he says, you can't come back here unless you bring your youngest brother, Benjamin. Benjamin was his blood brother, born of the same mom, Rachel, and and Joseph truly wanted to know if Benjamin was still alive, and so the famine is getting worse here in Genesis chapter 43, but Jacob, the father, is not willing to surrender. He's not willing to give in. He he says, under no circumstance am I going to send Benjamin. I've I've already been hurt too much in life. I've already experienced the loss of my uh, son Joseph. He thought he had passed away. And so he was saying, I am not going to send Benjamin. He was not willing to surrender. But what we see in this chapter is God starting to work in their hearts and lives and starting to break down those walls. And through this passage tonight, or this morning, I want us to uh, seek to uh, answer this question. How do we surrender our will to God's will? How do we do that? Because I I believe conceptually we would all agree that we should surrender our will to God's will. Conceptually we would agree, but practically what does that look like? Are we truly living surrendered lives? Are we truly surrendering our will to God's will? And as we study Genesis chapter 43 today, what I believe that we see are four signs of surrender. And so I want to give them to us this morning, four signs of surrender. Uh, Notice number one. The first sign of surrender is this, when you recognize your need in humility. When you recognize your need in humility. Let's pick up the text in verse number one. Everybody ready? Anybody else ready this morning? Notice verse number one. And the famine was sore in the land. And so the famine is getting uh, terribly worse. Uh, Jacob and his sons ran out of food. Things are not looking good. What was their obvious need in this moment? Their obvious need was food. Uh, They needed provision. They needed to eat so that they could survive. But they also had other needs. They also desperately needed leadership. Uh, They also desperately needed the grace of God. And so we're going to see their need as it unfolds here. Notice verse number two. It says this, And it came to pass, when they had eaten up the corn which they had brought out of Egypt, their father said unto them, Go again and buy us a little food. And so Jacob recognizes they have a great need. And he says, okay, you guys need to go back now. Go to Egypt, buy us some food. Verse number three. And Judah spake unto him. And Judah now is going to address the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is we can't go back to Egypt unless you let us bring Benjamin. Notice what he says. Saying, the man did solemnly protest unto us. He was very serious about this. Saying, you shall not see my face except your brother be with you. If thou wilt send our brother with us, we will go down and buy thee food. But if thou wilt not send him, we will not go down. For the man said unto us, you shall not see my face except your brother be with you. And so what we see here in these verses is the first sighting of leadership amongst Jacob and his sons. Finally, someone is stepping up and addressing the elephant in the room, and Judah just lays it out plainly. Dad, we cannot go back to Egypt unless you yield, unless you let us bring Benjamin with us. And so Judah just lays it out plainly. He steps up, and he's showing some leadership. Notice verse 6. And Israel, that was the covenant name for Jacob that God had given him. And Israel said, Wherefore dealt ye so ill with me as to tell the man whether ye had uh, yet a brother? Now, 
we kind of see Jacob's old nature shining through. Uh, remember, Jacob's name means deceiver. And so he was quick to scheme. He was quick to deceive. And, and he looks at Judah and he says, why did you even have to tell them that you had another brother? In other words, what Jacob was saying is, why didn't you just lie? One little white lie would have gotten us out of this whole mess. Why did you have to tell him the truth? You know, a lot of times when our back is against the wall, we are tempted to give a little white lie to make things easier. Because often dishonesty is the path of least resistance. If I just tell a little white lie, if I just bend the truth a little bit, then things will be easier. But the Bible talks about how the integrity of the upright will guide us. And the Bible talks about how we are called to live a life of honesty, a life of clarity, a life of integrity. Proverbs 20, uh, 12, 22 says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. And so here's Jacob, the deceiver, his old nature coming through. Why did you have to tell him that you had another brother? Why didn't you just lie? Why didn't you just bend the truth a little bit? Notice how they respond in verse 7. And they said, the man asked us straightly of our state and of our kindred, saying, is your father yet alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to the tenor of these words, could we certainly know that he would say, bring your brother down? In other words, they said, how are we supposed to know uh, what he was going to say? And he was going to ask to bring uh, our youngest brother. How, how are we supposed to know that? We just told him the truth. Verse number eight. And Judah said unto Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go. And here's a key phrase. I would encourage you to underline it in your Bible, circle it, star it. He says that we may live and not die that we may live and not die, both we and thou and our little ones. Notice how Judah is being honest and humble about their need. He says, Dad, if you don't yield, it's all over. Dad, if you don't let us take Benjamin, we are going to die. We are on the verge of extinction. Now, this was an extremely big deal in this moment, and we have to dig a little bit deeper to understand why. This was not just a family that was facing a need and that they needed some food. The promise and the covenant of God was on the line. Because remember, Jacob had a grandfather named Abraham. And God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he would birth a nation through him. And that nation would be strong and powerful. And he would have as many descendants as innumerable as the stars. That promise was then confirmed to Jacob at Bethel. The promise of God said, I'm going to build a nation through you. And here they are, Jacob and his family, and they are on the verge of extinction. And the promise of God is on the line. And so Judah is saying, Dad... Let us take Benjamin. The promises of God are on the line. Consider what is at stake. I want to encourage you, the next time you're going through a difficult season, the next time you are facing adversity, to consider what's at stake. There are generations that are coming up after us that need to know about the life-giving and the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. It's more than just me and myself and what I'm going through. Hey, uh, there are generations in Rock Hill Kids and in Rock Hill Youth Culture that need to know about the gospel message. We have to consider what's at stake. <laughs> Judah was saying, hey, the promise of God is on the line. Dad, you need to surrender. You need to let us take Benjamin. And so here we see the stubbornness of Jacob, I remember when I was in elementary school, I was playing football with some friends, and I got tackled. I fell. My arm hit the concrete, and I broke my arm. And it was very painful. Uh, but I remember I didn't want to tell any of my friends that I was in pain because I didn't want the older kids to think I was a wimp. And so when everybody asked me, how are you doing? I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's all fine. Uh, some parents came. They asked me, how's your arm? I said, I'm fine. That night I went to sleep, and I woke up the next morning. My arm was black and blue. It was all swollen up. And my mom said, we need to go to the doctor right now. We went. My arm was broken. It had to be rebroken and set in place. And that is no fun. How many of you have ever had a, a broken uh, bone that had to be set before, right? That is no fun at all. And so... 
Um, that, that was very, very painful in that moment. But here was the reality. I wasn't fine, right? The reality was I needed help. I needed my arm to be healed. And here I was telling everyone, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. You know the worst thing that we can do when we're going through a difficult season is just to put on a front and just to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, everything's fine, stop asking, I'm okay, I'm fine. No, what we need to do is acknowledge and recognize our need in humility. And say, no, I need God's grace in my life. No, I need accountability in my life. No, I need the church in my life. I need to be in a small group. I need edification. I need encouragement. I need to be challenged. We have to be willing to recognize our need in humility. And that is exactly what Judah is doing. Uh, Dad, we have a great need. We have to go or we're going to die. Recognizing his need in humility. And so often we want to put on a front like everything is okay. And we want to ignore that need. You know, the greatest need that we all have is the need for salvation. We are all human beings that were born into a sinful nature. We were born in Adam. We were born with that struggle, that, that, that nature of sin. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says in Romans that there is none righteous, no, not one. Today, we have to be willing to recognize our need. We have to be willing to recognize the need for salvation. I love what Max Lucado said. He said this, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, then God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a savior. Is anybody thankful today that God recognized our need? And because he loved us with an immeasurable love, he sent his only begotten son and lived a perfectly sinless life so that we could experience salvation and a home in heaven forever. He recognized our need. We must recognize our need for a savior today. We have to recognize that we are just sinners in need of the mercy and the grace of God. And Jacob needed to send his beloved son, Benjamin. Why? As Judas said, so they could live and not die. And aren't you thankful that God sent his beloved son, Jesus? Why? So that we could live and not die. So we have to recognize our need. This brings us to the second sign of surrender this morning. Number two is this. When you, embrace your response, when you embrace responsibility for your actions. Here's the second sign of surrender. When you embrace responsibility for your actions. Most of you might know that recently our family, we uh, have now a bunny in our household. And uh, Blakely, our youngest daughter for her birthday, she really wanted a bunny. And I was adamantly against and opposed getting a bunny. But Katie convinced me, and uh, we eventually bought uh, Blakely a little bunny, and our bunny's name is Floofers. And Floofers actually, I have to admit, I really like Floofers, okay? Really well-behaved bunny, and he's definitely growing on me. Uh, but Blakely, she promises that she's going to take care of Floofers. And, you know, when someone comes over, she loves to go pick up Floofers and to show everyone and to talk about Floofers and to let people pet Floofers. But it's a whole different story when it comes time to clean up after Floofers. <laughs> when it comes time to give Floofers some food, uh, the real parent is Katie in that situation, right? And uh, Katie is helping take care of Floofers. But uh, Blakely, she likes all the rewards that come with having a bunny, but not always the responsibility. And I think if we're honest, a lot of times in life, we try to escape and avoid the responsibility that God has for us. And I want you to see today how Judah is going to take responsibility. Everybody with me? Notice verse number nine. He says this, I will be surety for him. In other words, I will be held responsible. 
Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. What is Judah doing? Judah is growing in responsibility. He's stepping up as a leader. He's stepping up as a man. And he's saying, you know, I'm not going to give excuses anymore. I'm going to take responsibility for my actions. I will be personally a surety for Benjamin. Now, we saw last week that Reuben tried to step up and act holier than thou. And he said, hey, if we don't bring Benjamin back, then what did he say to do? You can kill my two innocent sons. You know, that was a terrible idea. Here, Judah doesn't say kill someone else. He says, hey, I will be responsible. Hold me accountable. See, up until this point, we have to recognize Judah was not a very good person. Judah had failed as a father. He had failed as a husband. He had failed as a brother. He had failed as a son. He lived in all kinds of immoral wickedness. But what we see here now is Judah is finally stepping up to the plate. He is finally taking responsibility for his actions. Many commentators believe this is the moment when Judah gave his life to God, taking responsibility. You know, one uh, pastor, Leonard Ravenhill, he said, today's church wants to be raptured from responsibility. We are quick to play the blame game. We are quick to point fingers and say, well, you know, I wouldn't be in this situation if they didn't do that. And if my job was different, and if my boss was different, and if I had more resources, then I'd be able to give. And if I had more time, then I'd be able to serve. And if they weren't mean to me, then I would do. And we are quick to give blame. You know, Duke University, uh, several years ago, by the way, pray for Duke University. They're my final four for the March Madness. But that's neither here nor there. Duke University, several years ago, did a study and they, they talked about how our brains are wired instinctively to assign blame. That instinctively, we live in a culture in our brains, we want instant gratification. And what's the greatest way to have instant gratification? To not take responsibility. That's when, when a problem arises, that's not my fault, that's their fault. And instantly, what do we have? We have instant gratification. Because we don't have to work on it. We don't have to solve anything. We don't have to fix anything. Because it's, after all, it's not our fault. And so, so often in life, we are quick to point our finger and to let other people know why it's their problem and why they need to fix it, rather than taking a look within and saying, I'll take the blame. When was the last time in your life you said, I'll take the blame? Me, me personally. My fault. It was my fault. My responsibility. That is what Judah is finally doing in this moment, and it is a sure sign of surrender when we can embrace responsibility for our actions. Um, John Maxwell said this, the greatest day in your life and mine is when we take total responsibility for our attitudes. That's the day we truly grow up. Total responsibility. By the way, this claim of Judah, how he says, I'll be a surety for Benjamin. I will bear the blame. I will take responsibility. It was put uh, put to the test in the next chapter. If you've read ahead, you know in chapter 44 what happens is Joseph wants to test them one more time and he takes that silver expensive cup and he puts it in in Benjamin's sack and as they're on their way, the steward goes out and accuses them of stealing and Joseph wanted to see if they would have integrity and tell the truth and uh, and, uh, they say, hey, you stole this and what does Judah do? He steps up in responsibility. In fact, uh, look ahead to the next chapter in chapter 44 verse 32. Everybody still with me? In chapter 44 verse 32, it says, this is Judah speaking, for thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, if I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. In other words, Judah was a man of his word. He didn't just say, I'll take responsibility. He took responsibility. He said, I'll bear the blame. And so what we see is Judah uh, taking responsibility. The Bible says this in Galatians chapter 6, verse number 4, but let every man prove his own work, his own work. How often in life are we quick to judge someone else's work? 
How often in life are we quick to look over there? Look at what they did. They didn't measure. Oh, they said this. They posted this. They did. I would never say that. I would never go there. I would never watch that. And we are quick to prove every man's work. But Paul said this, but let, let every man prove his own work. And then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for every man shall bear his own burden. What was Paul saying? Take responsibility for your actions. And so this is what we see taking place. Now, notice verse number 10 of chapter 43. Verse number 10 says this, for except we had lingered, he says, except we had lingered, surely now we had returned this second time. So what is Judah saying? He's saying, if we didn't waste so much time, we could have already been back by now. Dad, because you have not been willing to surrender, because you have not let us take Benjamin, we could have already gone to Egypt and been back again by now. I wonder, how much time in our lives have we wasted because we have not been willing to surrender? Because we have been stuck in stubbornness, we have been stuck in our own ways, because we've been stuck in what we want to do. I wonder how much time we have wasted for the glory of God because we have not surrendered to his will. Judah said, we could have been back by now. We've wasted so much time. The Bible says this in Ephesians 5, See then that ye walk circumspectly, walk very carefully, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. We need to maximize the time that God has given us by surrendering to his will. And that leads us to our third thought today, number three. Here's the third sign of surrender. It's this, when you truly relinquish your control. You want to know if you've actually surrendered your will to God's will? You ask yourself, have I truly relinquished my control? Have I truly relinquished control? Let's pick it up in verse number 11. And their father Israel said unto them, if it must be so now, do this. He says, okay. Jacob finally realizes the desperation of the moment. And he says, all right, if we're going to have to do this, then do this. Here's what we should do. Take of the best fruits and land in your vessels and carry down a man a present. Everybody likes a present. And a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds. And take double money in your hand and the money that was brought again into the mouth of your sacks, carried again into your hand. Peradventure, it was an oversight. Now, what we see is Jacob, uh, Jacob he was scheming a little bit and uh, he wanted to present some gifts. Now, Jacob had done this before. Uh, remember when Jacob was at odds with his brother Esau and uh, several years before? How did Jacob make reconciliation and restoration with his brother Esau? Well, what he did was he sent gifts ahead of him. I think that gifts were perhaps Jacob love language. How many of you, uh, your love language is presents when you get gifts? Anybody like that? Okay. Uh, three of you. How many of you don't like gifts? You just hate getting presents. Okay. Okay. So most of us would like getting gifts. And, and Jacob, uh, he is going to send some gifts forward. He's going to send some presents to try to uh, ease Joseph uh, a little bit. And so he says, hey, take some gifts with you. And then he says, hey, all that money that was returned into your sack, I want you to take double and pay that back. Okay, but then he says something interesting at the end of verse number 12. How many of you remember last week when Joseph showed grace and he gave them their money back for the food? You remember that? Well, Jacob is going to respond to that. Notice the end of verse number 12. He says something interesting. He said, peradventure, it was an oversight. It was just a mishap. If it was just an accident, take double the money. Now, that's not how the brothers responded to finding out they had their money back. How did the brothers respond? They said, what is God trying to teach us? What is God doing in this situation? What does Jacob say? It was just an oversight. I'm not saying in life that we have to over-spiritualize every situation, but be careful in your life that you are not quick to dismiss God's hand at work in your life. The brother said, what is God trying to teach us in this moment? Jacob said, it was just a mistake. But maybe what you call happenstance or coincidence is the providence of God, that God is at work in the little details of your life. 
The brothers recognized that last week. They said, what is God trying to teach us? And now Jacob says it was just peradventure and oversight. And so that's what he's thinking. Notice verse 13. Uh, Take also your brother. So he finally yields. He finally relinquishes control. He says, okay, take Benjamin and rise and go into the man. Watch verse 14. And God Almighty, El Shaddai, God Almighty, give you mercy before the man that he may send away your other brother, Simeon, and Benjamin. If I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. Jacob finally relinquishes control. He finally surrenders. And he says, okay, you can now take Benjamin. And what he does is he appeals, appeals to God Almighty. He appeals to El Shaddai. And what is he asking for specifically in verse 14? Did you see it? He's asking for mercy. Mercy. This is the first time that the word mercy is mentioned in all the Bible. Jacob says, what we desperately need in this moment is mercy. What is mercy? Mercy, by definition, is the withholding of judgment. It's the withholding of wrath. It's when we don't get what we deserve. Grace always takes it a step further. Grace is when we get something that we don't deserve. But, but here, Jacob is appealing to God and his mercy. El Shaddai. God, God, we need mercy. By the way, today, we need mercy. I'm thankful for the mercy of God today. The Bible says so clearly in Titus chapter 3, verse number 5, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Today, we are not saved because we deserve it. We are not saved because we bring something special to the table. We are not saved because of our works. We are not saved because of something that we did. We are saved according to the mercy of God and the grace of God. Is anybody thankful today for his mercy? Hey, we deserve judgment. We were born with a sinful nature. We rebelled against God. We rejected God. And the Bible says in Isaiah that our iniquities, our sin, has separated us from God forever. But aren't you thankful that Jesus made a way when there was no way, and he granted to us mercy. He granted to us love. He granted to us grace and the forgiveness of sins. And here in this moment, Jacob recognized what he needed. He needed God Almighty, the El Shaddai, to give him mercy. He was recognizing and surrendering. It's not my schemes that are going to do the trick. It's not the almonds. Joseph might not even like almonds. He recognized it's the mercy of God. We need mercy. Appeal to him for mercy. But, but notice how Jacob ends that statement. Everybody still with me? Notice verse 14. He says, And God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may send away your brother Benjamin. Now, if Jacob would have only stopped right there. What a beautiful prayer. How powerful is that statement? We're going re- to rest and rely on God Almighty for mercy. But then he goes on. He should have quit while he was ahead. And then he says, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. In other words, whatever happens, happens. Now, that does not sound like the Jacob that wrestled with God all night. That doesn't sound like the faith of Jacob when he met with God at Bethel. And he named the place House of God. This does not sound like robust faith. Whatever happens, happens. If I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. What this sounds like is a resignation of faith. See, Jacob is surrendering, but his faith is flickering. His faith is fading. Maybe today you are in this room, maybe you're watching online, and your faith is fading. You have faith. You trust that God is in control. 
but you don't understand why certain things are happening in your life right now and your faith is starting to flicker. Your faith is starting to fade. Well, I want to encourage you what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 20. It says this, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Can I just remind you today that our God is still a miracle working God, that our God is still the God of provision. He is still Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. He is still Jehovah Rapha. The Lord will heal. He is still El Shaddai, God Almighty. And Jacob here, his faith is starting to flicker. It's starting to fade. But what he needs to do is to appeal and to remember what he just prayed. If he's God Almighty, then we can trust him. He's the El Shaddai, then we can trust him. So let's pick it up in verse number 18. They're on their way. They get their stuff. Verse 18, they're going to head to Egypt. And the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time we were brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for bondmen and, and our asses, our donkeys. He's ba they're basically very afraid, and they're saying, Joseph is now going to turn us into slaves because uh, we're back, and they're very afraid because Joseph invited them to their house, verse 19. And they came near to the steward of Joseph's house, and they communed with him at the door of the house. And they said, sir... We came indeed down at the first time to buy food, and it came to pass when we came to the inn that we opened our sacks, and behold, every man's money was in the mouth of his sack, and our money in full weight, and we have brought it again into our hand, and the other money we have brought down into our hands to buy food, and we cannot tell you who put our money in our sacks. What's the point here, verses 18 through 22? The point is that Joseph's brothers are telling the truth. They're being honest now. They're not trying to scheme. They're not trying to uh, make up a story. They're not trying to connive. They're just telling the truth. This is exactly what happened. This is exactly what we know. They're being honest, okay? Verse number 23. And he said, this is the Egyptian steward here, and he said, peace be to you. By the way, there is always peace on the other side of integrity. When you are deliberately honest and truthful and you want to demonstrate integrity, you will always experience the byproduct of peace. There's no softer pillow than a clear conscience. But when we are conniving and scheming and bending the truth and telling little white lies, you are not going to experience peace. What the steward says is, relax. It's going to be okay. Peace be unto you. Calm down. Verse 23, and he said, peace be unto you. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Now, the steward the Egyptian steward says something very astounding in that verse. He says, your God, the one true God, the God of your father, the one true God in whom you can trust, he is the one that is taking care of you. Well, I have a question. How did that Egyptian steward know about the one true God? Was it because of all the great churches in Egypt and all the synagogues in Egypt? What, was it because of his little Bible study that he loved on Tuesday nights? The reason the Egyptian steward knew about the one true God is because Joseph told him. Egypt was a worldly place, a wicked place filled with idolatry, and yet here's the steward, and he is saying, hey, to the brothers, you can trust in your God. How does he know? Because Joseph influenced him with his faith. Here's the question that I have for you. To whom has your faith been transferred? To whom has your faith been transferred? Who are you influencing with the gospel? 
Here we see the power of Joseph's influence without Joseph even saying a word. His influence clearly had an effect on this Egyptian steward. Uh, last week, a couple weeks ago after small groups, uh, my youngest daughter, Blakely, she wanted to go home with me. And so I surprised her and I said, Blakely, let's go on a date. Let's go to Chick-fil-A. And uh, she loves Chick-fil-A. It's her favorite restaurant. And so she got in the car and uh, she was so excited. And we were listening to the Troll soundtrack and we were having fun in the car driving to Chick-fil-A. And I could tell that she was getting pretty tired in the back seat. And I kept looking back and I was like, Blakely, don't fall asleep. Uh, we're going to get some Chick-fil-A. And she was just kind of sitting there smiling. And, and uh, eventually she uh, dozed off and she fell asleep. And so I was just in the uh, Chick-fil-A uh, drive-thru and Blakely was sleeping and we ordered. And um, Katie uh, was texting me and it was taking a long time. Now, how many of you are thankful for the efficiency of the Chick-fil-A drive-thru? Like they have it down to a system, the two lanes. I love it. I just go in there for fun sometimes. You know, I like to watch how they work. They have it down. They say, my pleasure. It's a beautiful experience. And so uh, we were sitting in line and I was noticing this is taking a lot longer than usual. Typically Chick-fil-A is on top of it in their drive-thru. And it was taking a lot longer than usual. And uh, then it started to take a really long time. I was in the drive-thru 30 minutes. That never happens at Chick-fil-A. And Katie's asking me what's taking so long. Blakely's asleep in the back seat. And uh, finally, we got up to the front. And we were still waiting about 40 minutes in at this point. And I said, I said what's, what's going on? And they had, you know, all the workers are running around. And uh, they said, we're out of chicken nuggets. And I thought, truly, the world is coming to an end. Like, if there is uh, no other sign that the world is out of control, then Chick-fil-A is out of chicken nuggets. Like, that's a big problem. And I couldn't believe it. And I was getting a little bit frustrated as I was waiting, a little impatient. Blakely, thankfully, was asleep in the back seat. Uh, but we were just waiting and waiting. They're out of chicken nuggets. I couldn't believe it. And uh, I started just to strike up a conversation with, with, with the lady that was working there. And we started to talk. And we started to talk about church. And it just so happens that she was looking for a church. And it just so happens uh, that I'm a pastor down the road. And I said, hey, I think you would love coming to our church. And we got to talk about Rock Hill. And she said, you know, I'm going to come and visit. And she's looking for a young adult group. And so I'm praying. And I'm believing that she'll be able to come uh, to church and that the power of the gospel can transform her life. But here's what I want you to see. In that moment of frustration that looked like an inconvenience, wasn't an inconvenience after all. It was God's intervention that would lead to an invitation that we're praying leads to a life change. Not every inconvenience in, in your life is an interruption. Sometimes it's an invitation to step out and to use your influence for good. And here's Joseph, he's far away from home, he's living in Egypt, a worldly place, and yet what is he doing? He's using his influence for good. And now we see life change happening in the life uh, of this steward saying, you can trust your God. I want to encourage you in this Easter season to use your influence for good. I, I want to encourage you to use your influence to point other people to Jesus and to invite your friends and your family members and your neighbors. And hey, let's ask God to bring in a great harvest and that there would be marriages that are restored and lives that are changed and there would be salvation after salvation, all for the glory of God. Use your influence for good. Determine. I'm going to let my light shine in this season. And that's exactly what uh, we see uh, Joseph doing and we see it in the life of the steward. Well, let's skip down to verse number 26. It says this, and when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house, and he bowed themselves to him uh, to the earth. Uh, these were th these gifts that they brought, these, these almonds and these spices and these different things, they were, they were aromatic uh, spices. They would have smelled a certain way. And many commentators believe the last time Joseph would have smelled these things when he was actually sold into Egypt the first time. And so now Joseph is flooded with these memories. He receives uh, this gift. And at the end of verse number 26, it says this, and they bowed themselves to him to the earth. 
the fulfillment of the second dream that Joseph had some 22 years previous. Can I tell you that God is always right on time and that his word always comes to pass? Here they are 20 years removed, and now his dreams are coming to fruition. Verse 27. And he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom ye spake? Is he yet alive? And they answered, uh, Thy servant our father is in good health. He is yet alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. And they lifted up his eyes, and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, Rachel's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom ye spake unto me? And he said, God be gracious unto thee, my son. And Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber, and he wept there. Again, Joseph doing his best to keep his emotions in check and to control his emotions, and he goes into the next room, and he weeps because he sees his youngest brother, Benjamin. And this leads us to our fourth and final thought today. Do you have one more in you today? The fourth sign of surrender is this. When you enjoy the goodness of God, you know that you are truly surrendered when you can rest, sit back, and enjoy God's goodness. And I want you to see it in in the closing verses of this text. Notice verse 31. It says this, And he washed his face, and he went out and refrained himself, and he said, Set on bread. So Joseph comes back in, he gathers himself after seeing Benjamin, his brothers, and he says, Set on bread, we're going to have a meal together. We're going to share a meal together. Notice verse 32. And they set on for him by himself and for them by themselves and for the Egyptians which did eat with him by themselves because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is an abomination unto the Egyptians. And so in Egyptian culture, it was considered an awful thing to do to share a meal or to share space with Hebrews. That was an abomination. They were enemies. Uh, These people would come into Egypt and they would try to steal our food or try to commandeer uh, our land. And so they would never share a meal together. I'm not gonna sit at the table with an enemy. And I thought about that and I thought about Psalm 23, verse five. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runs over. When you fully surrender to the will of God, even when you are surrounded by enemies, you can still enjoy the goodness of God. And you can celebrate his faithfulness and his protection. He always has a seat at the table for you. And then in verse 33, it says this. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men marveled at one another. Remember, they didn't know that this was Joseph. They didn't know that Joseph knew who they were. And what Joseph does is he's, he sits them in order, oldest to youngest, Reuben, come here, and Simeon, and Judah, and Benjamin here at the end. And he sits them in birth order. And all the brothers are looking at this like, how does he know? How does he know us so intimately? Can I tell you that just like Joseph knew his brothers intimately, that Jesus Christ knows you intimately? He knows the very number of hairs on your head. He knows every concern that you have. He knows every battle that you're facing. He knows everything about you. He knows how much gas prices are. He knows about your housing situation today. He knows about your relationship struggle. He knows about the temptation that you're battling. He knows everything about you, and he loves you with an immeasurable love. He knows you intimately. Joseph sits his brothers in order. They're all amazed. How does he know this? Verse 34. And he took and sent five, or excuse me, he took and sent messes or portions unto them before him. 
But Benjamin's mess or portion was five times so much as any of theirs. And so here's what Joseph does. He, he's, he says, okay, let's go ahead and feed uh, the brothers until the stewards come. They're like, all right, Reuben, here's your steak, here's your meal, and here's Simeon, here's your steak, here's your meal. And they're going down the line, and then they get to Benjamin, and here you go, Benjamin, five portions, five steaks. You, you get everything. Now, Joseph was doing this on purpose. I know at our household, if one of our kids gets one extra grape, they all complain because they want to make sure they have the same amount of grapes. And so Joseph is saying, here, Benjamin, you get the most. Now, you better believe the brothers noticed that. He got five? Remember, they're in the midst of a famine. Having this meal was like a wonderful thing, right? This was amazing. They looked down at, they looked down at Benjamin. Oh, Lord, why did he get five? Joseph, watch this, was deliberately showing favoritism. The same kind of favoritism that led him to be sold into slavery. Joseph is testing his brothers. Will they do the same to Benjamin? Are they going to hurt Benjamin? Let's see how they respond to favoritism. Here's five portions. And how did the brothers respond? Did they get jealous? Did they get envious like they did 20 years ago? Well, notice the end of verse 34. And they drank and were merry with him. No more jealousy now. They're happy. They're celebrating. They're enjoying this meal that was provided by Joseph. Can I tell you today, there is always joy on the other side of surrender. There is always joy on the other side of submission. There is always satisfaction on the other side of submission. When we say, God, I'm surrendering, I'm letting go, I'm relinquishing control, then we can truly enjoy and celebrate the goodness of God. Here they are. They're laughing together in the midst of a famine, feasting like royalty. Joseph is showing great grace. Now, maybe Genesis chapter 43 is a little bit foreign to you. Maybe this is the first time you've read this narrative. Maybe it's been a while since you've read this narrative. But I would say most of us are familiar with this story because we've seen it in the New Testament. We are familiar with this story because we've seen it happen in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is the parable of the prodigal son. What does the prodigal son do? He lives a riotous life. He goes out, he spends all of his inheritance. He lives a sinful life. But what does he do? He recognizes his need in humility. He came to himself. What does he do? He embraces responsibility for his actions. He says, Father, I have sinned. He embraces responsibility for his actions. What does he do? He relinquishes control. He said, I'm not worthy to be a son. I'm gonna be a servant. And then what does he do? He enjoys the goodness of his father. It says this in Luke chapter 15, verse number 22. It says, but the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found and they began to be merry. There is always joy on the other side of surrender and there is always room at the table for you. God, as a loving father, is standing with arms stretched out saying, come home, surrender, come to me and you will find rest. Come to me and you will find joy. Come to me and you will find forgiveness. Come to me and you will find salvation. And today, if you've never experienced the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus, if you've never been saved, you can run to the Father. You can have that moment just like the prodigal son where you come to yourself and you realize, I have a need. 
you can come to yourself just like Jacob and say, you know what, if I don't send Benjamin, we're not going to live, we're going to die. And recognize the urgency of the moment and you can run to the arms of the Father and he promises to meet you there with a warm embrace and you too can be saved. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.